0: Hey everyone, I wanted to thank you for listening to another episode of Speed Bumps. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you subscribed on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If you're listening on Spotify, I would really appreciate if you clicked that five-star button, and if you're on Apple, you can click the five-star button and leave a written review if you're so inclined. If you're interested in coming on my show, you can reach out to me at speed.bumps.com podcast on Instagram. When you're driving, speed bumps force you to slow down. Some are big, some are small. Regardless of the size, they can really mess up your car if you go over them too fast. In this go, go, go world, society tends to have a negative view of speed bumps. But in my opinion, they don't have to be a bad thing. We all go through speed bumps in life, such as getting married, a spiritual awakening, having children, changing jobs, a trauma, and more. In this podcast, you will hear the various speed bumps that people have encountered and how those experiences have shaped them into the person they are now. Because every story has speed bumps, and that is what makes life interesting.
1: to have. Actually, there is a, the other aspect I would say, the other thing, the flip side of that, the thing that I love is my sensitivity. So ironically, most people would see those as opposites, the unwillingness to move when you're in a position that you know is correct. And at the same time, the willingness to take in a lot of information and be very sensitive to the things happening around you, to distinctions, to new information. Um, Elliot Hulse, who's, a someone whose podcast I've also been on, he refers to the key aspects of masculinity as tenderness and aggression. And I, I rather like that definition. And I I think that those, again, are things that people often see as opposites, but it's really important to have both. If you're going to have someone who's very strong willed or aggressive, they also need to be really sensitive and able to know what the people around them need. And at the same time, if you're very sensitive, you also have to be strong enough to handle a world that is not very sensitive.
0: I completely agree with that. And I think that is an absolutely perfect definition. You know, and you bring up the term masculinity in in today's society, quote unquote, a lot of people call it toxic masculinity and all of these different negative connotations around being a man. What are your thoughts on that? And how do you think we got there? I know that's quite a loaded question.
1: Yeah. A lot of what people refer to as toxic masculinity is a lack of masculinity. In other words, there's no such thing as, uh, you know, toxic greens, right? I mean, I guess some plants are, but in terms of like, when we think of like healthy plants, there isn't uh, a toxic amount of that. It's just people will be taking in the wrong thing. Um, and so I feel like a lot of what people define as that, you know, actually, I remember I saw a clip with Bell Hooks, who's a very famous feminist. Um, and what she said on this was that a lot of people use the term toxic masculinity when they mean a system of oppression or or what the, she calls patriarchy. And she says, if you mean that, you should say that, because when you throw masculinity into that definition then what you're telling people is they can't be masculine without participating in some system of oppression. Yeah. And if you tell men that they can't be masculine without participating in a system of oppression, then they're going to go, well maybe I need that system because I definitely need masculinity. You know, without masculinity men are in a really bad position. So why wouldn't I want that? And if you tell me I have to take this other thing with that in order to have it, some men are going to say it's worth the trade-off. Whereas I I think that A lot of how people define masculinity, their definition includes things that aren't actually masculine. So I would include in my definitions, like Elliot Hulse mentioned tenderness. I use the word sensitivity, awareness. That's
0: also part of it. You know, and I just, and I completely agree with a lot of that. And the one thing that also comes to mind is there's a lot of push in society for men to almost be not almost, for men to be more feminine to, and it's not that they shouldn't be in touch with a quote unquote sensitive side or things like that, like you said, but it's almost this role reversal or this insistence on men need to be women and women need to be men. And we all need to be equal without this recognition that there are great things about women that women are really good at. And there's great things about men that just men are really good at. And We're not recognizing those anymore.
1: You're bringing up something that might be a theme with some of the experiences I've had, which is a willingness to polarize and experience contrast. In other words, if you decide that you want, for example, like the body of a Mm bodybuilder, then you have to accept the contrast of soreness. Like there's going to be no point at which your muscles aren't sore. And I think that a lot of people want masculinity or femininity, but they don't necessarily want the contrast that comes with it. In other words, if you go really deep into masculinity, there are some trade-offs. There's things that the masculine can't do that the feminine can, and the same for the feminine. And I think there's like this fear of making a choice there of saying, okay, I'm going to go very much in this direction. And other choices are fine, but this is the polarization that I'm choosing, uh, and that comes up, too, in the work that I do. Obviously, in the the films I've created and the, the books I've written, I have a very pol- particular polarity and position. And I know that with that position, there's going to be some contrast. There'll be some people who don't like that. And that's okay. I'm ch- actively choosing a certain contrast of, okay, I know that these people are going to really love what I'm saying, and these people are not, and that's okay.
0: Yeah. Do you want to talk about your book uh, or not sorry book your documentary American Circumcision a little bit. One of the things that stood out to me I watched it with my husband. Uh, He he begrudgingly watched it with me. He was like you're doing some weird research for your podcast like fine. This is not a normal show. But a lot of things were eye-opening to him. And one of the things that was said was that for a man who is circumcised, the sensitivity of the penis decreases as they get older. So the sensitivity that, you know, a man has when he's in his teenage years is not going to be the same as when he's 40. And I can't help but wonder, is that one of the leading causes of erectile dysfunction is the fact that a lot of these men are circumcised?
1: So the two biggest markets for erectile dysfunction medication are America and Israel, which should tell you some some information about that hypothesis.
0: Yeah, yeah, because America is the only correct me if I'm wrong here is the only country that uses medical circumcision. Um Israel is predominantly Jewish and they do it for religious reasons, but those are beyond religious reasons. America is the only country that does it purely for aesthetic medical reasons.
1: Yeah, and, and in infancy in particular. So the thing that I've heard from men who cover that part of the body when they're older is that a lot of the sensitivity comes back. Not as obviously you can't get the the actual anatomy back, but Mm -hmm. you can cover it. Um, And that they report that there is that change in sensitivity. So
0: when you mean cover it, you mean restretching the foreskin over the penis, like the part that's left. So there's
1: something called foreskin restoration where people stretch that over time. Um, But there's also people who literally just basically wear like a sock over it. Okay. Um and cover it that way. So it's not rubbing against the inside of whatever you're wearing. Okay. I I've experimented with that. I have the same experience. Like it was a difference in sensitivity. Uh, and yeah, unless you're actually getting the full body part back that, that then it sort of goes back to where it was before.
0: Okay. Yeah. It, reading about, and just the visuals that you had in the documentary, and it's not that they were there was a part that was a little graphic, but there was a part where it was just like a drawing and it was showing how much skin is actually taken off when you circumcise a penis. And it was mind boggling. There was one, it was like 12 square inches or something was yeah. what it can be. like
1: 16 On uh, uh, is the average. I mean, obviously it's different from right, right. the person, but.
0: That like 16 square inches. is like a forearm and some ask like that's a lot
1: it is a lot
0: and we and doctors just think it's okay and that there's no ramifications like that it, it's mind-boggling
1: yeah i, I mean you're, you're preaching to the choir here on that one but <laughs> um
0: the so the reason i bring this up is this was a fairly new topic for me sure when I had heard you on Nathan's podcast. Um, I had kind of considered it, kind of looked into it, kind of knew, hey, I probably wouldn't circumcise if I had a son, but had never really done a deep dive until I heard the things that you talked about with Nathan. And it was all new for me. Uh, There was this term that used intactivist, right? Uh, Can you explain to the listeners what that means?
1: it's just a combination of the word intact and activist meaning activists for the intact body so their their thesis is that everyone has the right to their own body you've the right to make your own choices about your body no one has the right to cut a part of your body off and cutting a part of someone else's body off without their consent is a violation of their human rights so it's just a it's just a term for that and man there's a lot I could go into there but uh, you're gonna have to tell me which part of that you want. It's one of those things where it's challenging because if you sit and look at this with any amount of awareness, it's you know it's very obvious. Like we don't, I it don't you know like that cutting off parts of children is morally wrong and harmful. Uh, but it takes a lot to decode the layers of. Bizarre beliefs and cultural programming and all the other things around that. And so we could spend the whole podcast just talking about that, but it sort of depends on what part of that interests you.
0: I mean, I know. And like I said, I don't remember if it was your documentary or Nathan's because a lot of the information would overlap we you had talked about how in biblical times, the Israelites and the Jewish people, they would circumcise, but it wasn't circumcision like America knows today. It was like a little bit of foreskin off the top. It still looked like every other. It, it, it mainly looked like a penis. that had not been uncircumcised. Just a little clip. And then there was. One of the Jewish leaders, right, who it from the Old Testament? It, it
1: changed because there were Jewish men who wanted to participate in Roman athletic games, which were done in the nude, and mm-hmm. it would be considered very lewd to have that part of the body exposed. And so what they would do is they would clip it forward. They would just basically pull the skin forward and cover it. And so the amount that was removed was increased so that Jewish men essentially couldn't assimilate, couldn't have an identity in Roman culture and had to remain a part of Jewish identity. And that version is what has been in Judaism up until now, and it's also the version that was copied by English and American medical doctors, doctors during the Victorian era when they brought circumcision into medicine as a, you know, quote-unquote, cure for masturbation. So a lot of people don't know that the, the original reason that circumcision became a part of American medicine was as a, you know, quote unquote, cure for masturbation by Victorian medical doctors. And, and you know, since then, they've sort of found new reasons to justify what they're doing. And those have changed throughout history, but they've always sort of, sort of been rationalizations and excuses, essentially.
0: Yeah. One thing that I wonder, too, is a lot of the thing that are talked about right now is the decrease in birth rates. Um, You know, we'd mentioned erectile dysfunction earlier and it seems like a lot of men nowadays don't really want to have kids or there's fewer kids being born. Do you think that has anything to do with circumcision? And do you think that it's possible that the decrease in sperm count and or the um, robustness of sperm has anything to do with all the men being circumcised?
1: I don't think so. I don't think okay. that there's a correlation there. My guess is that the decrease in people having kids has a lot to do with the fact that people aren't supported in having kids. Okay. So there's uh, it costs more. There is less social support. There is less community that people have. And then, of course, when it comes to decrease in in sperm and testosterone, I think that's a lot to do with environmental pollution and things that are put in the American food supply like bisophate and microplastics and things like that. So yeah, I don't, it's one of those things where I, I, maybe there is, but I haven't researched it and I've, I've seen enough evidence that points to other things that I don't know if that's, there's anything there.
0: No. And that's fair. And Listen, I like to ask questions where sometimes like I legitimately don't know the answer and I like having conversations like I'm okay being wrong. I'm okay saying I I don't know.
1: (laughs) Everyone who's studied this issue has gone down that path of, okay, was this related to it or is this related to it? And a lot of those do turn out to be true. So there is a link between childhood trauma and adult behavior, for example. and, And the challenge is that a lot of that it's, it's very hard. You know, everyone processes trauma differently. Everyone has different experiences. And so it's not always the kind of thing that necessarily has a one-to-one correlation or that you can study in a A-B blind test. You can't, you know, right, have one group right. that has this experience and one that doesn't and then give them all the same lifetime.
0: So that brings me to a question that you, you mentioned childhood trauma and um, things like that in in your documentary. It was mentioned how the first instance of sexual arousal and pleasure, because in order to circumcise a penis, they have to get it kind of hard first, correct? And so that's the first sense of pleasure that this baby receives, this baby boy receives, and then he's hurt. So there's this possibly uh, memory that you don't consciously remember of pain and hurt and also sexual and pleasure and love. And do you think that has anything to do with um, the amount of sexual assaults and things like that? And do you know if there's been any studies of, hey, you know, the vast majority of rapists are circumcised versus not?
1: So on the memory part, there is data. And the data is really conclusive such that even pro-circumcision organizations acknowledge it. Okay. So one of the things we talk about in the film is the tattoo pain studies in which they found that people who are or, or children, infants between the age of four and six months who receive vaccinations, that they responded much more dramatically to pain if they'd been circumcised. And the researchers attributed this to PTSD. So they had an experience of pain during circumcision. They had another experience of pain during vaccination. And the pain during vaccination, they didn't just respond to that immediate pain, but the re traumatization, the triggering of the previous experience they'd had. Okay. And a change in behavior is a change, is an example of memory. So it's, it's children's memory, or really young children's memory, often is more so somatic memory than narrative memory. A young child might not be able to articulate the full day to day experience they've had, but they have had enough experiences with something that, that it will trigger a memory. It's the same reason that little children, when they see their mom again, they're happy and they're excited because they have lots of reference experiences with their mom to know that right. she's a safe and happy person. And so they've had a reference experience around pain that's taught them something that's created a memory or an imprint of some kind that is then influencing their behavior later. So that's really conclusive. And that's that study is part of the reason that sometimes, not even all the time, sometimes some pain relief is, is sometimes used during circumcision. I know, which is wild in and of itself that that is the way that it is. Um, So, and then on the other front of whether or not there's a correlation between that experience and then engaging in sexual assault later in life. Again, we do know that people who traumatize others often were traumatized themselves. Some of that data is difficult because I think there's one, for example, one country um, in Europe. I think it's Norway. I might be wrong on this, but I have to check. That um, they had data that a really significant portion of their people in jail for sexual assault were circumcised, but that was also in a Muslim population in a European country. Okay. So the challenge there also is that that population has a completely different socialization, and right. you know might be immigrants, might come from countries that have different ideas about sexual assault and consent and how women should be treated. Right. And so is it because of that or is it because of the trauma? In some sense, I don't know that you can separate the two because, you know, someone who experiences someone from a culture that has different ideas about how people should be treated is going are going to have different experiences with how they're treated. Right. Right. So one sort of begets the other. And then people who've been traumatized as children are going to create a different culture. They're going to do things differently, and if you play that cycle out over a thousand years, then you have the wonderful mess of a world that we have today, right? Of people who are acting out trauma in all sorts of interesting, unique ways all throughout the world. So, you know, is there a one-to-one correlation there? It's more of a a cycle. I think trauma functions more of like a cycle in an ecosystem, where you know, we were, you you brought up also earlier the the things that are happening around masculinity or a decrease in sperm counts and testosterone yeah. and people not wanting to have children. A lot of the time, I don't think that there's one cause for those. I think there's a snowball effect of causes. Yeah. In other yeah. words, it's not like, you know, this year there started to be problems in the American diet or environmental problems in the world. Where the people started having uh unhealthy or bad attitudes towards masculinity. These things are all occurring with each other at the same time. And then there are results that have a cumulative effect of those things going unacknowledged or unsolved for for decades. And a lot of the time when there's a crisis in the moment, it's not because that crisis just happened. It's actually been a slow burn that people have known about for a long time and haven't done anything about, and have let slide. And so I don't want to deal with it. It's not a big problem. Well, it's a not. It's a little bigger problem now, but I don't want to deal with it this year. You know, it's oh now it's a really big problem, and it's going to be so much work to clean up. Um, you know, your 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 podcast uses this metaphor of speed bumps, and I, I think that if you deal with them when they're small, they're a speed bump, and if you don't deal with them, then they keep building, and eventually they're a mountain you have to climb. And a lot of the time, a lot of the mountains we have to climb now, so to speak, are things that the previous generation could have solved as a speed bump and chose not to. So that's also how trauma functions, right? It just keeps getting passed on and snowballing.
0: I love that analogy. I've never heard uh, anyone quite refer to it like that. But I agree that if you don't deal with it either in the moment or fairly soon after, I recognize there's some traumas that, you know, You need a little bit of time to realize what happened before you can process. But to your point, waiting for the next generation or two generations to deal with it, that becomes a problem then, you know, whether it's pollution or, you know, the circumcision or uh, the fact that everyone's on, or not everyone, a lot of people, I would say the majority are on some type of um, antidepressant or antipsychotic, like what is that going to do? So, and that also has this snowball effect and, you know, you're describing, these boys who were vaccinated, who had a more intense response if they had been circumcised. And I remember I take my stepdaughter to get her haircut and she was getting her haircut. She's older. She's in upper elementary school. But then there's two little boys. They were probably between two and a half and four. There's two of them. And then there was a little girl around the same age, so the little girl getting her hair cut, No issue. Right. Whereas the boys had to be held down And we're screaming, and no, mommy, no, mommy, no, I don't want this. And, you know, and they're still doing it. And I had this realization of, well, the only time a little girl has been held down and hurt, quote unquote, is when she's been vaccinated. A little boy has been held down from within 24 hours of birth and potentially circumcised and hurt that way and then vaccinated. So, of course, when someone tries to hold him down, he's going to scream, no, mommy, no, mommy.
1: Yeah. My son hasn't had his first haircut yet. So now you've got me curious if he what his reaction to that will be.
0: I mean, I get that the clippers can be loud, right? But at one point they're just using scissors. Like there wasn't anything loud buzzing by their ear. And they were still like this person who I don't know is going to be touching me and coming at me with something that I don't recognize. And mommy and daddy are saying it's okay, but it doesn't look okay.
1: It's interesting too, though, I, I look at that, and if I was the parent in that situation, I would just say, "We're not okay. We don't have to get a haircut today, right?" Right. But the fact that his parents are pushing through his no, like I don't know, there's some parenting stuff going on there where I, I, I question that decision a little bit.
0: Well, so would I, and it was two separate families, and that was the thing. And at one point, you know. It, it was a place that was meant for kids. So they had these chairs where you could like buckle your kid in. And then the parents were like bear hugging the children that's while so these weird. where these stylists are like cutting these little boys hair. And I'm just like, let the kid have long hair. Like, yeah,
1: that's also weird to me, too. At what point do you normalize? Oh, we got to put buckles on this because so many kids are having a bad time. Like, why? Like, what what led you to that decision? And I'm not thinking like, why are kids having a bad time during this? Right. Like. That's like, so strange. It we,
0: it was it, it, it was so uncomfortable that I was just like, we're not coming back here again.
1: Bad parenting is uncomfortable to be around. Yeah. Like, I, I don't... Every now and then... It was, so we, we have a child who's going to be two in a couple months. And we... I don't know. Every now and then we'll meet parents and we'll be getting along. And then they'll do something. And they'll be like, hey, don't do that. You know, They just that like... Voice will sort of cut through, and I'm like, Oh, why? Like, I thought we were cool. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you like, know,
0: and I get that everyone has their bad days and moments of snap, and not everyone is perfect. But for me, I couldn't help but wonder, and maybe this is me going to the extreme, but I feel like it in some ways it's not. I felt like what they were teaching these little boys is boundaries don't matter. Yes. So, oh, no,
1: that's exactly what they're teaching them in that moment.
0: So the little boy is saying no. And, and they're, they're also
1: gaslighting. Right. No, it's fine. It doesn't feel fine to me. Like, oh, you're, I'm not supposed to trust my feeling if someone else who's an authority tells me it's fine, but it doesn't feel fine.
0: So when they're older and they have a girlfriend and, you know, they're having sex for the first time and she's like, no, I really don't want to do this. And he's like, no, it's fine. Shoot, We're going to do it, it anyway. Right? good to me. Right, right. right. <laughs> like, that's what these parents are perpetuating.
1: Yeah. Oh, so in my my book, Children's Justice, I go into that. I think that a lot of what people call patriarchy is just men modeling what people did to them in childhood to others when they're in a position of power. In other words, if you have something like circumcision happened to you as a child or or, um, most of the things people do to children, there's sort of a lesson of um, if you're bigger and stronger than someone else, you get to do what you want to their body. Yep. And so that's a really dangerous lesson to teach someone who's going to grow up to be a man who's probably bigger and stronger than others. Right. So the lesson there is like, well, I I need to be the biggest and the strongest. And in fact, I need to make sure I'm at the top of whatever this hierarchy is. Cause when you're a little kid, you're obviously at the bottom. Right. As opposed to, Oh, if you're in a position of power over others, you need to treat them gently and with respect and take their best interests as a part of your own and figure out, you know, all of those things.
0: Yeah. And I think what happened is I see these parents who it's either very authoritative and it's my way or the highway, which then created this complete counterculture, so to speak of gentle parenting, except there's no parenting and there's no guidance. And the kids just run around like little hellions. And that's not great either.
1: So a lot of people confuse gentle parenting with permissive parenting. Okay. So permissive parenting is when you, as the parent don't have boundaries because you're afraid if you have a boundary, it will upset your child. As opposed to, yeah, I have a boundary here. You, you know, you can't. I mean, for example, the ones that I have when I'm out with my son, he's um, like I said, he's he's like one and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, we will go for a walk together and he has to stay on the sidewalk because if he can't walk in the street because yeah. he's a little kid, he right. just can't do that. And if he gets upset, I'll say, yeah, I'll be with his feelings. Like, yeah, I know. It's upsetting. I understand that you want to go there, but we can't do that. But there's still a boundary. I'm not going to let him walk in the street. It's just that I'm not going to be mean to him. And I understand why he'd be upset because he wants to explore the world. There's all this stuff around and he wants to go into the street. And, like, I I get it. But also, I'm not going to let you do that. And a lot of that is also involves redirecting. So if your child wants to do something that they can't do, then you have to give them something that they can do. Would you like to instead and then offer something? we go this way instead? Do you want to look at the dog over there or the squirrel? Do you want to go to the mailboxes? You know, whatever.
0: Yeah. And the other thing is, too, is I see a lot of parents, um, especially little kids, like toddler age, preschool age, they'll be hitting each other. And they'll be like, no, no, stop. And I'm like, for so many reasons, that's not going to work. And parents will be afraid to stop their child. But if you go and you say, you know, I'm going to stop you because this isn't safe or you're hurting so-and-so, let's go play with this toy to your point of redirecting. Like it's okay to stop your kid, but you also don't have to scream at them or swat them on the butt to make them stop.
1: Yeah. Well, so if you do that, then you're teaching them that swatting others is the way to get what you want, which is probably why they're hitting, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, some of these things that kids do are very Normal developmental things. Because, like you said, they're exploring their world. They want to see, they're testing boundaries, but they're not doing it in a malicious way like an adult would. They're doing it from a purely child curiosity way. And I feel like what happens is we as adults can take that boundary pushing as personal when the child isn't doing that. That's not what the child is doing.
1: Well, boundary pushing is the way they learn where the boundaries are. It's yeah. like if they push and there's nothing there, then there's no boundary there. And that's what they know, right? Uh, it's also, I, I think kids learn by modeling. So, uh, my wife took my son to a, a nearby park and there was another little kid who came up and he, he wanted to play with the toys that my son was playing with and my son shared it. And she, the other one was like, Oh my God, how'd you get your child to share? Like, that's so amazing. And I, I realized we never taught him anything about sharing. Like we've never taught him anything about that. But when we have something and he wants to play with it, we share it with him. So he thinks that's just a normal behavior that people do that, you know, we have food on our plate and he wants mom and dad's food, even though he has the exact same food on his plate. Like we'll give him some, it's fine. Um, You know, we have something that we're, even to the point where if it's something that he can't have, we will get him a version of it. So he can't play with our phone, but he has like a little child silicone phone. That's not electronic at all. Right. So he just thinks that sharing is a normal thing that people do. And has modeled that without us ever having a conversation about sharing because that's, he just sees other people do it. So it must be a thing you do.
0: And I feel like that right there is this almost magic key to parenting that a lot of people don't want to realize because that takes effort. That takes time. That also puts the responsibility back on the parent.
1: Oh, I I saw a great TikTok that just warm my heart of this woman having a crying emotional breakdown as she said you know she's realizing like if i want my kids to act better i have to be a better person and that's so hard yeah it's so hard to change your own patterns uh there's a great book called the continuum concept by this woman who went to south america she was originally doing a diamond hunting expedition And she found a diamond of a different sort. She was looking at how indigenous people raise their kids while she was there. And she said that they don't really do anything that we do in the West. They just model things that their parents are doing. And she called it a continuum, essentially that you are raised a certain way and then you just pass that on to your kids. And the difficulty that we have now is that the way that most of us were raised is not something we want to pass on. So we have to do the effort of changing and there's so many things where i am i am so conscious and so focused on you know trying to uh raise my my child in a way where where he will feel loved and uh, he will become a wonderful person and every every like if i don't go into the parts of me it it always comes out even when i'll see it i'll go oh wow like i I have to change that myself because even it's something where even if I try to uh, like brute force it of like, okay, well, I'll, I'll just teach him different, even though I'm not there yet, I have to get there. It's always, it's always, the solution is always that I have to change in some way or grow or something.
0: Yeah. And that, that's really hard to do like even yes. if you're just by yourself <laughs> yes. like that's really hard to do as you, you're talking you're just, about like, self development
1: single... and trauma healing and all these things yeah it's it's the worst it's the worst,
0: <laughs> it, it, it's, the worst. And it's awful and even if you're by yourself trying to do it it's hard and then i don't have any young children so i can't imagine trying to do it while trying to teach another small human being how to be a good person like kudos Yeah, you to just you. have
1: to create time for it like after they go to bed i'm yeah. i'm doing uh you know, various processes to heal and clear things. Like, that's just what it is.
0: Do you mind sharing what some of those things are? Like, do you meditate? Is it, do you read books? Is it podcasts? Is Uh, it journaling? The biggest
1: thing for me is something called completion process, which I'm very excited to talk about because uh, someone got mad at me for liking that and wrote a hit piece on it. And so um, now I want to talk about it even more because of my my stubborn spirit. Uh, Completion process is uh process there's a book with the same name it's a process created by a woman named Teal Swan and you basically are really present with whatever feeling is there mm-hmm. so every every healing i've studied so many different trauma relief and healing processes everyone starts with being present with what's there and that's why um meditation has been a really good base for everything because meditation is just being present um, and of course any kind of healing process, you're present with it, and then you start doing things. So the premise of it is essentially that any negative pattern you have or belief that isn't serving you, you learned at some point. Mm-hmm. It isn't you weren't born with it. And so it's often due to an unmet need, often in early childhood, and you just sit with the feeling. And you validate the feeling. Like, it's okay to feel that. It makes sense that you would feel that in that situation, right? hmm And then you get curious and you go, when was the first time I I felt that? Where does this come from? And you sit with that, essentially as a meditation. And then when something comes up, you start working with that original memory of whatever it is. Okay, what did I actually need in that situation? And then there's a process by which you imagine yourself receiving that mm-hmm. and validate that. And you, and you validate that too in the memory. So it makes sense that in that first situation you would behave. And in fact, very often the, the thing that you learned that isn't serving you now was serving you back then. So it was a coping mechanism. And if you're in a dysfunctional home or a traumatic situation, some of those behaviors maybe served you then. And so you, you validate that you acknowledge that and then you change it. Um, and then there's, there's like a few visualizations after that where you, you, you know, if there's any parts of you that were, that you pushed into your subconscious or you let go of, you you invite those to come back and integrate in some way. Um, And that's basically it. And so it's just being present with your feelings, um, seeing what the unmet need was, and then finding a way to meet that. And when it's met in you, very often the pattern changes. So if there's no, reason for that particular behavior or pattern then it's gone right yeah so that's the whole process
0: yeah actually now when you mentioned teal swan i think i know the controversy controversy that you're referring to about it but the thing i have to say about that is i can appreciate everything you said and then also dig- disagree with some of the things that she's done so i can appre- just like the art versus the artist is how i see that and yeah
1: I I like the artist too, if I'm being honest. So, so, and and it's also a case where um, there's the artist, and then there's the things that people write about the artist, which are often and that's true too. Right,
0: like everyone has a perspective, and often our perspective on even our memory or someone else is based on our past, and so if someone is writing something they're going to base it on their experiences and you know their perceptions and my perception isn't any more right than your perception is if so maybe so <laughs> I think back, in certain circumstances so right now yeah it's sunny outside but it's partly cloudy but someone could also say it's partly sunny at what point is it partly sunny versus partly cloudy if both are true
1: you're describing uh what i've heard referred to as the reticular activation system which is that you are going to notice things in your environment that you're looking for and uh, people talk about it because if you've had a lot of trauma you're often looking for threats and you miss opportunities because your mind okay. is looking like what is you know what's the danger here and you might not see what's the joy here or what's the pleasure here or what's the opportunity here mm-hmm. and so yes uh, people's people's experiences will filter what they're looking for
0: i like that you know the names of these things that i just know the definitions of i really really enjoy that (laughs) (laughs) because i understand some of these concepts and logically i know that there has to be a term for it but i've never bothered to sit down and try and figure out what that term is so i sincerely appreciate this no sarcasm like i love this
1: in my book, there's there's even a term for needing the term for things. So in, in the book, I talk about uh, epistemic injustice. Epistemic injustice is, is social justice issues around knowing, and there's a particular category known as hermeneutical injustice, which has to do with not having the language or ability for for your experiences to be understood or communicated. So if you so if you for example were living in the Pre-Civil War South as a, a black man, and you didn't have the word racism. It'd be really hard to communicate the things that you were dealing with, and so there's a sense in which having the word to describe your experiences is necessary to get justice for them. And similarly, okay. this is a big issue around around not just circumcision, but a lot of forms of childhood abuse. A lot of the issue is that they're described in ways that make it difficult for us to talk about the harm. So circumcision is, you know, we have this euphemism circumcision. If people called it holding down a child and ripping off part of their genitals, I think there'd be a very different attitude towards it or it's referred to as a practice or a medical practice, not sexual assault of a child. And and you mentioned the story of, uh, you know, people holding their kids down to get, uh, get, make them have a haircut. That's a case where you could also describe that as like a form of force we don't usually use those terms to describe parents coercing their kids into doing something, which maybe is beneficial. Like maybe they, they would be better off having a haircut, but there isn't the language to describe that nuance of the way that they're going about trying to achieve that end. And so what happens is that there's often a gaslighting. which by the way, the word gaslight comes from a 1940s play and movie called gaslight And we didn't have that term before that particular story was told about it. Uh, And so there's a gaslighting there when when the language used is not actually representing the thing that's happening.
0: I want to ask you something. I just dropped
1: a whole bunch of new terms on you.
0: No, no, you totally did. And I'm thinking about something currently happening in my life that I want to ask you about once we... Stop recording. Um, okay. So I'm trying to redirect this into something that I can talk about on air. Let's uh, both
1: talk about our stuff on air. Let's go there. <laughs> I'm fine with it. Um, If you need to, though, it's fine.
0: Yeah. I, for the same reason that I can't talk about your thing, I can't talk about my thing.
1: No, I'll talk about most of my thing. Just not, you know, certain parts.
0: Fair enough. Uh, We're going to go back to your documentary real fast for um, okay. American Circumcision. and. There was, um, in California, correct, there was a gentleman that tried to get something, I want to say it was in San Francisco, on the yes, ballot. The that... San
1: Francisco male genital mutilation bill, an attempt to criminalize the circumcision of male minors without their consent.
0: Yes. And you know, in the documentary, you had also talked about um, female genital mutilation, which that in America seems to be you know, that is definitely bad. We're not going to do it. And a lot of your documentary talks about not a lot some of it, the dichotomy between how it's in America, it's bad for females, but it's okay for males. And I think it all has to go back to, like you said, the descriptions and the words that we use, and yeah. how it almost says we're, those words that we use are sterilized, um, no pun intended, for, you know, how we describe circumcision. So but there was a group of people that were very upset about this. And part of me, because I I like to play devil's advocate, part of me sees it. There's a group of Jewish people that said it was against their faith and it was an infringement on their religious freedom. And part of me gets that. However, learning where circumcision started and why it changed, like you said, due to the Romans, that point, in my opinion, then it's not biblical anymore. Like you're not doing the prescribed thing. And also, Christians, if you believe that Jesus came and saved you, then he was the ultimate sacrifice, then Christians shouldn't be circumcising anyway.
1: Yeah. So what's the question in there?
0: So the the question is, is there the possibility of this happening in other cities? And do you think there would be a way to rewrite the bill that we could criminalize circumcision?
1: So if you want to do any legislation around this, you probably have to fight the Jewish lobby. I think that's what okay. people discovered with the San Francisco ballot initiative. And, and of course also the medical lobby, although the Jewish lobby is more significant in terms of its power, right. actually debate over who's you're taking on to two Goliaths at the same time. Basically, Fair enough. Yeah. We're going to use biblical analogies. Um, so Unless you're ready to take on that challenge, I don't know that you can win on that particular front. The other difficulty is that they might have won had they gone to a vote, and uh, basically the the other side used more lawyers to throw it off the ballot. Gotcha. And I, I know a fair amount about the behind the scenes there. And you, you had, you know, activists who were funding their stuff through crowdfunding, um, fighting like $900 an hour lawyers, basically, which, you know, and, and uh, people who had access to congressmen and media and things like that. So it's it was a, a case where um, even with the truth on their side, they... They were up against more than they could. And it's also a political situation back in 2012, or excuse me, 2011. At that time, social media was not where it was now. So Instagram, to give you an idea where it was, Instagram had not even been invented yet. And I, I think that that plays out differently in today's media environment. But back then it was, it was not a fair fight. Uh, so that's the big challenge there. The other question is, could you rewrite it? with the religious exemption, which was what some people talked about at the time. And what Jewish activists in the movement said was, no, like we should be protected too. In other words, if this is a human right, if everyone has the right to their own body, uh, just because your parents have a particular belief system doesn't mean that you don't also still have rights. And that is the big challenge there, is that in the belief system... The belief systems that that support genital cutting come from periods of human history where concepts like consent or bodily autonomy or human rights didn't exist. Right. And so when they say, well, this is our religion, I think that they are making a true statement and you have to have the moral courage to say, yes, and it's still wrong.
0: Well and I remember in the documentary there was there was a family that did it they were jewish and they didn't it was like a it wasn't an actual circumcision it was like a ritual circumcision where can you explain that cuz i was conf- but they didn't actually cut anything correct
1: um so there's some jewish people who try to maintain their their identity by essentially doing a version of the ritual that doesn't involve cutting And I'm very skeptical of it because a lot of those people have also been really harmful to the anti-activist movement and have done things to undermine it, uh, done things to personally attack me. And so before I would have told you, oh, like, people can just do that. Um, But now I kind of feel like it's a cop-out answer because the people I would point to saying, well, look, they could just do this are also... Not really standing up for survivors and for people who've been harmed by circumcision, and they're not actually committed to ending it um and they're a lot of them have worked with pro circumcision organizations and they're they're doing things that are really underhanded and bad and harmful uh and I also think it's a cop out because the majority of Jewish people and the sort of the greater construct of Jewish identity. Is really intertwined with circumcision and genital cutting, and so there's this sort of like, well, you can't, um, you do. I think you do have to conf- confront that at some point. And and what's happened, by the way, because we were talking about you know this analogy of speed bumps mm-hmm. and how if you don't actually confront something over time, it grows bigger and bigger. Uh, what's happened is after the San Francisco ballot initiative. I think the anti movement experienced a form of trauma because they had always seen themselves as standing up for the truth, as standing up for children. And so they had the entire media and politicians and everyone who's involved in this turn against them and say, oh, you don't really want to protect children. You just hate those people. And it's really hurtful. Like I, I experienced some of that too. I was working on the documentary then and I had this moment where I sat on the, uh, steps of the San Francisco Capitol building after I'd been shooting, you know, the day when the the court case was announced. And I thought if I continue working on this documentary, there's a chance people are going to come after me the same way, right? There's a, there's a possibility that, uh, instead of seeing the, the intention I have to spread awareness and protect children, uh, to make great art, that those things are going to be misconstrued as something else or intentionally misrepresented by people who have a political axe to grind. And I made a decision. I said, I, you know, there's a part of me, my own inner child, if you will, who's been harmed by this. And if I quit now, then I'm also sort of giving up on that part of me. I'm saying, like, look, they're bigger and stronger. I'm going to let them do what they want. And instead, I made a decision that there was no amount of political bullying that would push me off that course. And that I was going to speak the truth no matter what they did. And so that set me up on a very different path. And I think that it's turned out well, but at the same time in the larger movement, there's still this really big fear of having any sort of conversation about the Jewish aspect of circumcision. And it's challenging because even though The majority of circumcision in America is not Jewish. It's, it's carried out in hospitals and by, you know, medicine and culture. A lot of the resistance is, and especially uh, in media and in media hit pieces on the movement, that is always the thing that gets brought up. And I think that those people need to acknowledge the harm that they're causing, when they demonize survivors who are trying to talk about an experience of sexual assault in childhood. So there's a lot of harm there. And, and because that hasn't been dealt with, I think the fight that happens around it is going to get bigger because what I, I've noticed is that uh, people who've been sort of pushing this angle of like, oh, all of you are bad and anti-Semitic and you know, these things feel emboldened. And like they can really just push around these activists because what are you going to do? Are you going to are you going to brand? Let yourself be branded as like with this label. Uh, and so they're they're doing things that are really harmful and beyond the bounds of just like I disagree with you or a hit piece or something like that. And that fight's going to be a lot uh uglier when it happens because of that because they they don't understand that there's certain boundaries that they've crossed that it's not okay to cross it's we were talking about parenting earlier it's the same thing of like if you're someone's very permissive and doesn't have any boundaries then when they actually start reasserting their boundaries the the people in their life who wanted them not to have boundaries are gonna react really differently than if they just set that boundary straight from the beginning you know
0: yeah those who if you haven't had boundaries, once you set them, those who were benefiting from you not having boundaries are going to get really upset when you start enforcing them. And I feel like that goes for a relationship, um, whether it's a personal relationship, a parent-child relationship, uh, you know, political things, anything like that. Once you start setting boundaries, people are going to get very upset with you. And I feel like the art of debate has been lost of you and i as an example here can sit here and have a conversation right um but also not call each other names and not uh slander each other like actually have a debate and yeah. that doesn't exist anymore and instead what happens are these um isms or these ists you're racist you're homophobic you're you're uh transgender whatever like all these ists like you're anti whatever and instead of hearing the other person where they're at and to your point of harm part of your documentary was interviewing men who had been circumcised who are telling their story and what I would equate that to is a female rape survivor coming out and telling her story and the ones who were actually harmed, not doing it for political reasons, ones who were actually harmed and people going, well, no, that, that that's not true. It wasn't bad enough. You didn't say no. Um, You were wearing a short skirt. Um, You were drugged, So you can't really remember it, Uh, whatever that is. And, The world is doing the exact same thing to these men of, oh, well, you haven't lost any sensitivity or, you know, it can't, you can't possibly remember that, or you don't know any different. So what does it matter? Like that one, that one got me the reason Hmm. because, so I don't have a thumb on my left side, but I've never had a thumb. Okay. So for me, I can honestly say, I don't know what it's like to have two thumbs. I was never, ever born with it you grew in your mother's womb for nine months and had that body part. It was a part of you that was then taken away. So whether you consciously remember it, it was still a part of you. So saying that you, you couldn't possibly know, I feel like that's false.
1: Yeah. It's also, um, I mean, you can know there's, there's some remnant of the foreskin that you can feel on anyone who's had this done to them. Um, It's such a strange uh like well it's sort of embracing ignorance essentially that people should be ignorant of what's done to them uh but like you you mentioned you not having a thumb you know you could look around and see what, what it's like in the world of other people yeah. who have thumbs like of course you're going to find out um i don't i don't think any parenting based in the the denial of reality or the assumption that your children will remain ignorant is going to last very long and the world that we have now. But you're right. There is a. Um, the word I use in my book is fragility. That, that there's this idea that if there's any. When, when there's any criticism of this issue or any criticism of someone's identity, there's often this reaction of defensiveness, of um, triggered behavior, of fear. And it's really harmful because what is needed in that moment is to acknowledge the harm that's been done to the survivor. And a lot of the language that we have is actually inverted. So it's focused on what the survivor, there's a way in which the survivor telling their story is held accountable for the perpetrator's emotional reaction instead of the person who's listening to that story being expected to, to engage with it in some way or to listen. So instead of when, if, a, if you say to a Jewish person, I, I'm, I feel really harmed by circumcision and they say, well, that's anti-Semitic. The focus is on the fact that your story made them upset, but you didn't make them upset. They were upset in response to that they were upset because hearing that story made them realize that this person felt harmed and that they were in some way complicit in that harm. Yes. And they became fragile. They became afraid of, you know, that threatened their ego structure in some way. And rather than acknowledging the feelings that came up in response, they projected those feelings and said, well, you just must be trying to harm me in some way by telling your story about how you were abused as a child. Right. Um, It's, it's a case where, The language hides what's actually happening. And if you were to communicate this in nonviolent communication, um, you know, if I say I feel harmed by this, um, there, if you were to to take what they were feeling and phrase it in nonviolent communication, and it's in terms of I feel statements, it would be Mm -hmm. when you describe how you feel harmed by this, I feel threatened. I feel afraid. I feel like uh, you are attacking my identity. I feel like my identity is under attack. It brings up all this trauma and triggering I have around people attacking my identity throughout history. Uh, I feel like the bad things that have happened to me and my people could happen again if this narrative becomes something that's popularly accepted. Um, like they would say, I am afraid. Mm-hmm. And if if that was the point, the starting point of the conversation, like, I understand that. I want to be with your fear. I want you to feel safe. Yeah. But if you come at it with... Um, you're a bad person for telling this story or having that perspective or that's you're they're instigating the fight. Right. And it's so interesting. It's one of the ways that trauma is self-repeating because if their fear is that people will turn against them, then attacking a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and saying, you know, you're not allowed to talk about that because of my identity is a really great way to get that person not to like your identity and to yeah. make them instigate some sort of fight with you. Uh, Which is what, by the way, if you don't clear the trauma, it repeats, right? Because people, you know, unconsciously are, you know, that trauma is going to be something that they're acting from. I think that there's so much trauma, um, not just around this issue, but that Jewish people have around other things that it sometimes comes out on this issue where there's this, like, fear of, like, if anyone has criticism of Jewish identity or of us, that these traumas will happen again. And then they there's behavior that doesn't actually facilitate a conversation where they could, they could feel safe. Like there, there's a way that the circumcision changes and all Jewish people are completely safe. And we as a society go, well, we did this thing in the past. Um, we learned, we have a different perspective now. Everyone's okay. Right. Um, yeah. Not always the way the conversation goes though, unfortunately.
0: You no. Know, and, and I would venture to say that nowadays, that's rarely how the conversation goes. I think, think and it's not just around circumcision if you say something that someone feels offended by you're right they just it's oh well you hurt me by sharing that um but if someone who is an adult said that you know their father sexually assault sexually molested them when they were three i don't see many people attacking that person saying, oh, well, you asked for it or, you know, you knew better or whatever, right? But somehow when the harm is tied with a culture or religion or things like that, even if that person didn't do it, the whole thing becomes defensive. And instead of being able to look at the specific topic that we're talking about in this game, circumcision, it becomes, well, you're against everything that we stand for, which isn't true.
1: It's, It's a case of people identifying with certain social constructs and thinking that they are those things rather than that that is something they participate in. In other words, when people talk about not just this issue, but most identity issues, they say, I am circumcised. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's an I am statement. It's a type of identity like I am uh, male or I am uh, white or whatever Mm -hmm. identities Mm -hmm. they identify with. And so when someone brings criticism of that, often because people have this identity relationship to it, they will become defensive of that identity not realizing it's just a thing that happened and people don't have this with other you know like you, someone who's had uh shoulder surgery wouldn't say like i am su- shoulder surgery right and if someone someone "Hey, maybe you didn't need that or that was harmful in some way they wouldn't they wouldn't feel like oh you're attacking my identity so the language that we have is so identity based that people don't realize it's a thing they're participating in rather than the truth of who they are and i actually even believe this you know one of the the genius uh innovations of social justice and and the sort of theories around that is that even our ideas about race or gender might just be social constructs that we're participating in so in other words if you say i am white that could be just be a description of your skin color But there could also be all these cultural ideas about what you have, you know, what that means to be that particular role that maybe are true, but maybe are not. And maybe you have choice around once you, you know, notice them. And I think the same is especially true of Jewish identity. We will say, I am Jewish, so I have to do this. You know, that will will be the follow-up. And it's like, so because you're a certain – from a certain culture, you have to have certain behaviors. You have to, like – Once you start breaking down, it's very clear. This is a choice. This is a social construct they're choosing to participate in. And like any social construct, it might be beneficial in some ways or oppressive in others. And there's choice there about how much you want to participate in that. And so when people hear criticism of something they consider part of their identity, there's this, oh, they're attacking me, not this is a social construct that we're critiquing and looking at.
0: And the way I'm going to relate that to me is for the longest time, I hated the word disabled, I thought it was mm. a bad, dirty word. Never, ever use it. And then I, I guess quote unquote embraced it. And then I was like, I would mm. say I am disabled. Well, part of that is true. And then sometimes I would say I have a disability, which is also true, but I had to for a while, get away from that. I am disabled because I felt like every topic or anytime someone who had a disability was slighted in some way that I had to respond Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: one that's not healthy because I can't respond to everything like we as humans are not meant to care about every single person in the world we're not meant to be connected to every single person in the world our world is meant to be much smaller but also I can sympathize with it without having to react to it so I can think that it's stupid or that uh They didn't have wheelchair access when they should, but I also then don't have to write a letter to every single restaurant that doesn't have a wheelchair ramp. There has to be this removal of, I can recognize where I'm at and I can recognize where the person's at, but not attack everyone who doesn't acknowledge everyone's disability.
1: So it sounds like you were having an experience where you were so identified with that aspect of your identity that any slight of the identity was also about you and you had to interact with that.
0: Correct. Yeah. And it, it was weird because I went from I don't identify with it at all to a complete 180 of that's how I completely, you know, I'm in it 1000%. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, I guess, somewhere in the middle. You did, of, a,
1: you did a pendulum swing. Sorry, I did.
0: I no, no. Yeah, no, you're good. Yeah, I did like this pendulum swing and now I'm resting somewhere in the middle. And it's not to say that I don't care about things. It's just, I, ha- I feel like I have to put my energy where it might actually matter. Mm. So random, writing a random restaurant may not change, but um, talking in front of the state Senate for changing access to prosthetics and insurance I feel like those two are one's more worthwhile than the other that makes and sense I, also, I don't know if I'm correctly connecting um what you you're, are.
1: you're you're talking about uh we're 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 talking about who people identify with, and I would be really curious this is an exercise that's helped me when you start uh shadow work is when you start seeing the parts of yourself that you identify with and the people you don't like. So like what part of the, of the restaurant that doesn't have that is also you, like I totally have parts of me that get defensive and you know, all of these various things that I don't like in others. So shadow work is okay. I'm going to go into like the part of me that's relating to this person I have conflict with, uh, which is important because you're, you're also talking about an earlier language that people use sort of labels. They put on others as a way to say like, you're a bad person. And a lot of what that does is it's a way of distancing and saying, you're not a part of me. I'm not in connection with you. You're different. And it creates it creates distance. And I, part of me understands some of the reason for those labels. Um, but it also, it's, I'm having trouble finding the words here. I had a thought and then I lost it. Um, I remember. So the, there's a safety that comes from staying in connection with someone, even when you disagree with them, because a lot of the time those words and labels have the implied meaning or communication that if you don't behave differently, if you don't think differently, if you don't change who you are in some way, we can't be in connection and relationship. And that is incredibly unsafe for for any person who wants to be authentic in relationship.
0: It's also unproductive. As opposed
1: to like... <laughs> You know, like, you could be an awful son of a gun, and I'm still going to be connected to you. And I think in my own relationships, the best relationships I have are those where me and the other person can be absolutely a mess in front of each other and all over the place and be honest about the opinions and perspectives we have that, like, maybe even we know we shouldn't have, you know? Yeah. And just be completely honest with each other. Um and see now I'm thinking about my wife and the wonderful, <laughs> wonderful marriage we have, because Lord knows we've we've had some moments in front of each other where it's like, I'm so glad I'm married to you and you're not gonna tell anyone about
0: this. Yeah, you're not gonna tell anyone, <laughs> you're not judging me. Uh you're yep. not gonna go post on Instagram or Facebook or oh whatever. Oh my god,
1: it's wonderful.
0: Yeah, I I concur. My husband's the same way. Like yeah there's definitely been times where I'm like, I'm really glad you're not going to go close to about this. Like,
1: yep. but there's so much safety in that. And I think yeah. most people want, want all their relationships to be that way. And I also know that uh, people, I think intuitively understand this with their kids. They'll tell their kids, like, no matter what you do, I'm always going to love you. Um, Cause they know, they know that people need that safe relationship and that safe relationship is often just reserved for, parents, spouse, kids, at least in one direction, and maybe that's it. And I, I think people would actually like it if all their relationships were that way and that it's possible. It's possible, I think, if you communicate what you need to feel safe. So it's like, look, i you have these opinions or perspectives that I don't like. Um, I think the fear is that if someone has a different perspective, that they will act in a way that makes you unsafe, like that they will... You know, the, the, the argument behind those words is often, well, if someone has this perspective, they might do something violent or, uh, contribute to violence happening against those people in some way. There's this idea that, uh, if people have certain attitudes and words that are negative towards a particular person or group, that like that'll eventually reach violence in some way. And my experience and perspective has often been the opposite, that if you make it safe for people to express their feelings, no matter how negative they are, that they don't need to find other forms of expression that would be more harmful. But actually, if you make it safe for them, they will make it safe for you.
0: Well, in this kind of, what what's popping into my head is like a little kid who's throwing a tantrum and they're just trying to express their emotions, but they're exactly. doing it in the only way they know how. And yep. so if you know, a three-year-old can be a little bit different, but if you can sit a kid down and give them that space to feel what they're feeling and if they want to scream at you and say you're the worst parent in the world and you know that they don't mean it but they need they're having these emotions and they need to get them out that's going to lead them to be healthier adults i think what happens as adults we sometimes have these feelings because of this unresolved trauma we haven't dealt with it and then we're put in situations where we're getting triggered and instead of sitting down and like you said having this conversation We're worried that someone's going to throw a tantrum, except that person, it might not just be yelling and screaming. In a lot of cases, it is just yelling and screaming and posting on social media and throwing a tantrum that way. But they're worried about something physical happening, which based on that person's experience, maybe that is valid. But I feel like a lot of the times, in my opinion, it's almost like a cop out of, well something bad could happen something physical could happen so therefore we can't have this conversation where the the likelihood of that is it's more likely someone's going to write a smear campaign than anything else
1: right you're um m- most adults are just children inner children having meltdowns of various forms and once you can spot it it becomes apparent that uh that principle, you know, doesn't just apply to some dysfunctional people, but to most on social media and certain world leaders and people in media and politics, that they're all just children having meltdowns of various forms. And you also mentioned um there's this, like, fear that it, the tantrum will become something else. I, the thing that came to mind was it sounds like there's sort of a weak boundary there. In other words, if you have a clear boundary that words are okay and speech is okay and and violence isn't then the speech is gonna feel fine as long as that boundary is clear
0: yeah
1: and see now i'm thinking that a lot of the people who have this fear that like at some point words are going to somehow magically manifest into violence that's how it works for them i think it's a projection of like that they don't have a clear boundary that they're not, it's not okay for them to not attack other people in certain ways. So they assume, oh, others, others are going to do the same thing.
0: Yep. I, I think you hit the nail on the head right there because I can think of circumstances in my life where that has happened. They get very upset by words or the truth. And then they claim that the other person would physically harm them when that's never happened. However, the person whose feelings are getting hurt, they've actually done the physical things. So yeah. you're onto something right there. Well, this is
1: why I like doing healing work. Cause this, all this stuff doesn't stop once you get into like politics and media and business and other things. It's all still there.
0: It, it, it's everywhere. And I'm hopeful that the kids who are being brought up now with, uh, parents that are genuinely trying to heal themselves and they're trying to do all the right things um, that hopefully they will be better and then even their kids will be better and this world will heal a little bit. Um, I also think there's a lot of uh, insanity in the world so it might take a couple generations but I'm, I'm hopeful we're on the right track.
1: My my guess or best prediction is polarization that it's gonna be very apparent that people are in different realities and that there's gonna be uh people who are very much in one reality because they've done the work and yes. people who are very much not because they haven't.
0: Yeah, I feel like the people who don't want to do the work or can't or whatever, we're just gonna put them in one like side of the country or certain states or whatever and then have other, other people who are trying to be better not perfect just trying to be better trying to work on themselves we can all live together and put the crazy people over there
1: you're so optimistic that, the, <laughs> that those that these realities won't be bumping into each other all the time
0: <laughs> listen um i have to have hope because otherwise i'm gonna go crazy so i'm not at the verge of hopium where i'm totally delusional but i have to have like some hope well, because
1: hold on. <laughs> hold on we i found a difference in our perspective i okay. i don't I am fine with them be like, I want to reach the level where they can be in my reality and I'm fine. Like I'm good with it. I actually even have reached the point where people who, you know, hate me and write hit pieces about me. I have found a way that they're even working for my success. Like I'm totally going to use those people for my benefit. I'm every time that I feel harmed by them, like that's an opportunity for me to do healing work Every time that they put my name in print, that is free publicity. I am going to use that to my advantage.
0: You're, uh, we're just gonna say you're a little more healed than me right now. I'll get, I may get there, but right now that's it's not just, where I'm at. No,
1: it's alchemy. Like energy <laughs> is energy, and so if they start sending negative energy in my way, my way, like I am going to convert that, like I am going to devour that and turn it into power for me. Absolutely, yeah. No, no one ever became famous without a little controversy.
0: And that's true. And that's true. There's a, um, there's a gentleman that I know. His name is Brandon Thomas. He has the Expanding Reality Podcast and he has this thing called a Thought Ninja. And what it is, is this little ninja that he quote unquote installed in his brain that doesn't allow bad things in and anything bad, he turns it to good. And it's not this uh, necessarily a negative bouncer, like with a weapon or anything. It's more of like a, if there's a dress code in a club, you have to be wearing certain attire in order to enter his brain and have the proper thoughts. And so he's trained himself that way. And I think it's just a really cool concept. I'm still working on my thought ninja. Uh, sounds like you have yours down pat.
1: Um, I, yes, I like that concept, but mine's a little different. It's more like alchemy. Uh, the visual metaphor that comes to mind is that there's, um, there's like med- or visualization exercises where people will convert whatever's coming them, to them into white light. Okay. Um. Oh man. I I could share mine, but I think I need to. I think that the the conflicts I'm involved in, I might need to keep it a secret. I'll tell you off air if you're curious. We'll be a will be another another Easter egg that all the listeners of this podcast are going. Dang it, just tell us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, y'all y'all have to get the inside scoop. Uh, and that's not on air, but I'm gonna take a wild guess here. It's more of like anything that is because you said alchemy. Things that are thrown at you, uh, you use them to create something good. So you take compost, right? And put it in a garden and that yeah. compost then goes in a garden. It can create food and it can grow good things. So even though it's something, it's a discard or a waste or quote unquote garbage, it can be used to create beautiful things in food.
1: See, I don't even think, of, I think of the, that there is good in them. Like I just, uh, I don't know. I, there's certain things where I want. Um there's a, f- a phrase called controlled opposition. Are you familiar with that? Yes, yes. okay. So for those who who don't know, it's the idea that um uh a political group or someone who's trying to accomplish an agenda will not just run their organization, they'll run the opposition organization. So you have one political party and then you have another political party that's run by your political party that um, secretly is pretending to be against you, but is secretly working on your side. And I kind of feel like on a spiritual level that the people who are against me are actually secretly working for me, which is funny because they, they, some of them actually know or control opposition groups that are pretending to be on the same side as me, but you know, working with opposition, which is a whole other topic. Um, But I, on some level, on a spiritual level, you know, not on a physical level, obviously, but on a spiritual level, I feel like there is a way in which that they are so unprocessed in their own trauma that they're creating the outcome that they don't want. And so the outcome, if the outcome that they want is to get rid of me, they're doing the opposite of what would actually accomplish that. So if, if someone who is, horribly uh on the wrong path tries to set course for getting rid of me there's a way in which they're working harder than anyone else to keep me around
0: yeah yeah i can there's that that idea that
1: what you resist persists so if someone's in resistance to me i will persist right like they're gonna keep me going more than anyone else and, and if the feeling is strong enough, uh, you know, if someone, if you want to keep someone's name in media and in the, at the center of everyone's attention, controversy and conflict and hit pieces are a way to do that. Yeah. Like if I just did what I did and some people liked it and I, I wrote for them and that was all that happened, then, you know, I have, I have a small following and that would be it. And if other people decide that they want to write about that okay i mean i'll take the press you know Uh, it's especially good if what they're saying about me is really false and easily disproving and ridiculous yep and obviously hateful and wrong um so if it's a contrast between me speaking my truth and that I, i kind of want that to exist so that all the people who are drawn to that energy go somewhere else and go be a part of someone else's audience rather than mine. Right.
0: Yeah. That's a wonderful
1: filter that they've created.
0: That is. And like you said, even though it's quote unquote bad publicity that it's trying to be bad publicity, it's still publicity and it's still getting your name out there. It's still getting those clicks. It's the same reason that people will uh, do those. What are they called on Instagram where they're the stitches where they're, uh, or the reaction videos, because then you yeah. still have the main artist, You still have the tags. And even if you hate that person's music video, you're still getting their name out there because you're associating yourself with them. So I think it's the exact same concept.
1: We were talking about uh, speed bumps earlier. And I think one of the things I said in an email to you before this podcast was that speed bumps are a liftoff point. If you accelerate hard enough into them.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: In other words, if you go hard enough towards a speed bump, you get some air. You do. And so, and so the big, actually, the bigger that it is, the more air that you can get. If you just accelerate, if you just go straight towards your shadow, towards whatever that thing you don't want to face is, if you go hard enough into it, you will get some air. I yeah. learned this, by the way, because growing up, uh, there were speed bumps all around the my neighborhood. And it was really annoying because they were very poorly built. And, and your car could get stuck on them. If you went over them because some people's cars were really low. This is back in the nineties. And so you get this like metal crunching sound as you went over this, the speed bump. And so everyone actually had to accelerate into them so that your car wouldn't get dragged on the metal on the bottom. So they had the opposite of their intention that like every teenager I knew when they were driving around the neighborhood, they get these, these speed bumps like, ah, we got to accelerate and just like (laughs) right over them as fast as they could. And, uh, I think the same has been true of a lot of the speed booms I've experienced in my life where someone was trying to slow me down. And I thought, man, I got to take this head on if I'm going to handle it.
0: That is a absolutely fantastic perspective. And I can't think of a better way to end this episode. Uh, everything will also be in the show notes. But is there anything specific that you want to plug to the listeners? Your Instagram, your website, anything like that?
1: The best place to follow me is www.hegemonmedia.com That's where my podcast is. That's where my writing is. Uh, and I'm at BD Murata on all the social media platforms.
0: And if you guys are interested in watching American Circumcision, I found it on Amazon Prime Video. And if you live in Connecticut, I currently have the only library book in the state of there's only one copy of uh, Children's Justice in the state of Connecticut, and it's currently out on loan at my house. Uh, so I
1: have no idea how my book made it into the library, but that's great. I'm excited.
0: It's in the library. There's only one copy in the state of Connecticut that I could nice. find. In, I, but, and I have it, and I'm reading it. I'm working through it. Um, that's great. But, yeah, check your libraries for that. Buy it through your website or Amazon, or what's the best way to buy it? Yeah, I
1: mean, Amazon's probably the best place, but, you know, there's links all over my stuff.
0: Well, all of that will be in the show notes, guys. And thank you all for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. Your website, anything like that.
1: The best place to follow me is www.hegemonmedia.com. That's where my podcast is. That's where my writing is. Uh, and I'm at BD Murata on all the social media platforms.
0: And if you guys are interested in watching American Circumcision, I found it on Amazon Prime Video. And if you live in Connecticut, I currently have the only library book in the state. Of, there's only one copy of uh, Children's Justice in the state of Connecticut, and it's currently out on loan at my house. Uh, so I have
1: no idea how my book made it into the library, but that's great. I'm excited.
0: It's in the library. There's only one copy in the state of Connecticut that I could nice. find. And I, but, and I have it, and I'm reading it. I'm working through it. Um, that's great but yeah check your libraries for that buy it through your website or amazon or what's the best way to buy it i mean
1: amazon's probably the best place but you know there's links all over my stuff
0: well all of that will be in the show notes guys and thank you all for listening and i hope you have a wonderful wonderful day